0: please to, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, again, we come to your word as we do week after week after week, and I trust even in our lives, day after day after day, because it is our sustenance. And so we pray that you would uh, feed us today uh, by your word and at your table, uh, that our faith may be strengthened, uh, that we, we may love and Look to and serve only you this we pray, uh, in Jesus name. Uh, amen. Turn, please, to First Kings in chapter 17. First Kings in chapter 17, please. I was going to read a bit, but I'm only going to read the first verse. All right? First Kings chapter 17 and verse one. Hear the word of God. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, "As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word." Now, I want if God will help me uh, to take up in the next number of weeks. Uh, these narratives that deal with the prophet Elijah. We may after that go on to the prophet Elisha after that. But, but, but for now, the prophet Elijah. In doing that, I'm leaning a bit on the fact that today is the first Sunday of Lent. Some of you may know that. For others of you, it may not be meaningful. But it's the first uh, Sunday of Lent. Now, if, if you worship with us regularly, you know that I am not uh, desperately tied to this church calendar or what we call marking time by sacred time, at least in our in our worship. Um, however, uh, it can be very helpful. For centuries Christians have done this. They've they've set aside various seasons of the year beginning as we know with this season of Advent, that's sort of like the first of the Christian year if you're season of Advent and, and moving on from there. The reason being is that that, that the church has found over the centuries and its wisdom, if you will, pro wisdom from God, that that it's helpful for us to walk through the life of Jesus. So we, we celebrate Advent and we think of his comings, his first and second coming. We think most especially during that time of the incarnation of Jesus coming, God being, uh, the word being made flesh and dwelling among us. And then, then we move to Christmas day and then Christmas Tide, the, the, the Sundays, if you will, after Christmas or, or so. And then this this season of epiphany. Now you have to be a pretty good Episcopalian or Anglican to really know that one. But, but epiphany means manifestation. And it's, it's during these Sundays after Christmas that we ask the question, who is it that was born? You know, this manifestation of God among us. Who, what's this really mean that, that he is And So those Sundays in January. And it leads us then to, these, to this season of Lent. Now, originally... The word Lent was simply a word used to describe the time between winter and summer. We now have the word spring. That's what we call it. But originally, it was Lent. But it became so associated, because of the influence of the church and culture, became so associated with this season to be observed in the church, Lent, that we no longer understand the time between winter and summer as Lent but as spring. But Lent... Is this time, this 40 days before Easter, the church often sets aside to think about Jesus coming and dealing with sin. 40 days uh, representing this 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. There he was face to face fighting with sin more than we've ever known, more than we've ever fought. And and there he was to fight it and and defeat it at least at that point, Jesus 40 days. So the 40 days before Easter set apart for us to think about this, this struggle of Jesus, this conquering of sin by Jesus as he's as he's come though. so for us it's a season of of repentance really if jesus has come to deal with sin and its misery and consequences come to defeat sin and death then it's for us to repent of sin and believe and so it's this season of the year that the church has set apart to think about and to repent now it isn't the only time of year we repent i trust if you're like me you repent all the time. It was Luther, I think, that says when God calls a man to himself, he calls him to a life of repentance. It's this constant comparing our lives with God and constantly repenting and confessing and receiving grace and so forth, you see. That's it. That's the, the life in which, in which we live. But this season, to, to most especially to set aside and to think through this struggle with sin, to think through Jesus coming to deal with it, to, to think through our own response to that and how we re- repent and confess and live that life of repentance. Some of you may, may know of a tradition that where people give up something for Lent. Karen and I were just in Western Pennsylvania, and it's a, it's a huge Italian Catholic part of the country. And so we went out to dinner. We broke away from our being staffed to our two grandchildren. And uh, we, we broke away, and so we we're having lunch on a Wednesday afternoon, and I didn't realize that I should have because it's in my calendar, but I wasn't looking at it. It was Ash Wednesday, and so the featured special of the day was fish. Because in that part of the country, most everyone gives up meat for Lent. So if you go to any restaurant, you'll find the feature of the day throughout Lent to be some sort of fish and because they realize, ah, meat sales will be down. It's just the way that it is. Now, there's some value in that sort of thing of giving up something for Lent because, because we realize sacrifice, we realize that we're called to deny ourselves. Jesus said, if you want to follow after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. So there's, there's something about that. It's a reminder. I, I'm giving. I'm denying myself this particular thing during Lent. But there's a danger too, isn't there? The danger being that we might think that giving up something is in some way penance. That if I, if, I, if I abuse myself in some particular way, I, I give up something that I'd rather have, uh, that, that, that somehow that's making up uh, for the sins I've committed. Of course, that's both silly and blasphemous because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to pay for our sins. We, we don't pay at all for our sins, no matter what we give up at any point in time. And it's not meritorious. It doesn't gain us anything. It doesn't gain us more grace uh, because, we, because we do that so it may in fact be confusing be confusing to us so there's a danger you see in that giving up well, that's up to you as to how you want to handle that but if you're giving up chocolate for Lent I'm not so uh, <laughs> I'd be happy to take it off your hands uh, but you, see, you see nothing that we really give up really matches at all the sacrifice of Christ. It just simply can't, nor can it pay for our sins, because pay for our sins is death. It isn't just giving up television for 40 days. And if you give up a particular sin, well, hey, that doesn't really count, does it? Because you shouldn't be doing that anyway, right? So it's not that, oh, the rest of the year I'll do this sin, but not these 40 days because it's Lent, you know. Uh, That's sleep. But it's helpful, you see, because you see, when we think of Lent, what we're thinking about is a good thing to think about. The sacrifice of Christ is coming to deal with sin, our repentance, our turning from it, our receiving His grace and forgiveness and walking with them. That's a good thing to think about. So it's, it's helpful for us to do that. And in fact, there's another helpful thing about it too, and that is this, that it, it kind of joins us together, doesn't it, with, with churches throughout the century. You see, we're going through a time period in the church that's rather unique, frankly, and the unique thing that we're going through is that particular churches are all trying to be unique, that every church is trying to get its own little sort of personality or identity. That was never the thought of the church until recently. So much so that, you know, when I travel around and and go to good churches, churches pastored by dear friends of mine and so forth, I can't even sing with them because our songs are all different. And that's all right. I mean, I try to learn them and, you know, put up with it and all that. But if we go back to singing hymns, that won't help because we have a whole generation of people who don't know hymns and, and we're just starting something. And then we can sing the top 40 praise songs, but, you know, we all sing them differently generally. And so it's just difficult, isn't it? Because this, and so when we think about these sort of times of Lent or Advent, for me at least, it helps me sort of have my arm go back and grab hold of those who were before us and say, oh, you did this too, didn't you? You spent this time, year after year after year, century after century after century, thinking of Jesus coming and dealing with sin in this way and, and thinking of repentance. And, and it just sort of helps me anyway going to grab them and say, oh, we're part of the same thing. It's still the same Uh, from generation to generation to generation. So what I wanted to do during these Sundays in Lent is to go to Elijah, this prophet. Because you see, during the days of Elijah the prophet, there was these, idolatry was rampant. That is, that in the culture of Israel, amazingly so, the culture of Israel were to ascribe to other gods, gods, really, that which belonged to the one true and living God. And they worshipped and served other gods during this time. So Elijah comes in the midst of that kind of sin, that kind of neglect of God, that kind of blasphemy, that kind of culture, that kind of nation. He comes into that setting, you see, and he confronts sin, and he confronts sin in a way that says that God is God. He's the king, and he's the savior. That is, he's the one who rules and reigns, And he's the one who gives life. And and as Jesus, of course, comes on the scene to deal with sin, obviously deeper, the very root cause of sin. As Jesus comes, you see, on the scene, what does he do? Well, that. He confronts it. He deals with it. And in his dealing with it, he says, listen, God is God. He's the one who is ruler. And he's the one who reigns. And he's the savior. He's the giver of life. Trust him. No one else. So what we'll do, you see, is we'll start with Elijah. Elijah but we'll end up there. We'll start with Elijah, but we'll end up at this communion table all these weeks of Lent. Now it's an interesting question for churches. How often do you celebrate, administer communion? I don't know if you've ever wondered that. Why do we do it at Grace the way we do it? Now for years we did it the first Sunday of every month. And, and we've come, we, we do it at least once a month, but we've come a bit erratic. You'll know there's some weeks we do it for a number of weeks in a row and then not. I do that just to make you crazy. But, but it's difficult, you see, because the Bible isn't explicit about how often we ought to say. There's no verse that says every Sunday. Now, there isn't a verse in there that says don't do it every Sunday either, and so we live in that tension. So we have this sort of fear if we do it too often, then, then, then perhaps we'll give it too much place in our worship. And it can become rote and ritualistic, and, and we won't think about it. Or for others, they'll put too much emphasis on, on, on the table, and, and they'll think, well, if I, I get this, then I'm fine. I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to listen to anything else. I, I just, just come, and I get this, and, and I'm good to go. You know, that's, that's all I need. And so there's that kind of fear in that as well but there's also a problem of doing it too infrequently and that is that we'll miss the blessing and so the question then is what's the blessing what's the blessing of 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 communion is it is it simply remembering jesus well it's at least that isn't it i mean jesus set that up he says do this why well in remembrance of me and he gave us all these wonderful cues. You see, as we come to the table, this we call sacrament, that is taking that which is ordinary and, 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 and setting it apart, sanctifying it, if you will, setting it apart for this worship so that it points us to Jesus, if you will. And we, we set these elements apart. And, and Jesus did that so on the night that he was betrayed. He did that at what we call the Last Supper. Really, it could have been the first. But he sets apart these elements, and and he says, now these will remind you of me, right? Remind you of me, this bread, my body, this wine, my blood. I don't know about you, but every time I go anywhere and I smell grape juice, I think Jesus, right? The night, last night, I was at dinner. Bread was being passed around, and I took everything in me not to take a piece of bread and break it and say something. But I thought, well, they just laugh, just like you did. Uh, and it wouldn't be really the way I should do that. Uh, but, but I think about it. Bread, it reminds us, doesn't it, of Jesus. We, as we smell, as we touch, as we hear it broken and poured, as we smell it, as we taste it, To think of Jesus. We remember him. And there's a blessing, of course, in remembering Jesus. We remember him all kinds of ways. We open the scripture, we read him, we remember him. We think of him, we remember him. We talk to other believers, they speak to us of Christ, and so we remember him, you see. There's all kinds of, of means by which God gives to us to remember him. This, a special way, this way, says do this in remembrance of me. But isn't it more than just remembering him? Jesus did say, this is my body. This is my blood. And he would say that, you see, so that we would know that he is present with us. Now we don't believe that he's present with us in body, that is to say. We don't believe the elements change so that the bread is his literal body, so that when you're, you're taking a piece of bread, it's, it's the literal body, actual body. Jesus Or when you dip it or drink or whatever, that it's the real that's real blood the real blood of christ that he's here bodily because we believe that jesus was speaking at that night figuratively he did that all the time he said he was the door right but he didn't have hinges he said he was the vine but he didn't have roots he said he was light but he didn't have a wick uh and so we know what he means by that on the night that he was betrayed as he set up this this meal his his blood was throwing, flowing through his veins his his body was right there before him. It wasn't in those elements or it wasn't there. We didn't, it didn't become his body and blood. And so we get it. He's saying, I'm, I'm with you. I'm as close to you as these elements are. Even when you take them in yourself, I live in you. Know that. And so we realize a blessing as we come to this table is that we're in the very presence of Jesus. That he's here with us. But we can't see him, but he says, oh, just these will bring you. These will. Remind you, these will inform you, these will convince you. I'm here. He isn't only there, He's with us all the time. He's with us in the good days and the bad days and the good things and the difficult things that come into our life. He's always with us when you go to work tomorrow morning or, or wherever you are tomorrow. He'll be there with you because you belong to Him. And so He's there. He's, he's there in the scriptures we read, you know, His grace comes to us as. as we share with one another about him. He's in that conversation. He's with us. Grace comes to us. But he's here too in this, in this way that we trust that as we come to the table, we're in his presence. And so in these weeks of Lent, as we think of Elijah, we'll allow him, we trust, God will help us to move from him in his day, and what he did, what was going on. Oh, and move then oh, to Jesus. It's interesting. I was in a conversation earlier this week with a dear friend of mine. You'd know him if I gave him your name, but I his name, but I won't. He doesn't live here anymore. And he was saying to me <clears throat> his kids were little when they lived here. And he said, and they go to a great church where they live church you and I would love to go to. And he said his daughter now, who's a teenager, said to him, he said, Dad, you know, I love our church, meaning the church they attend. He said, but you know, I remember at Grace, they seemed so serious about worshiping God. And he called me to say thanks. So I trust in these weeks of Lent that we'll be very serious, joyful but serious about recognizing what Christ has done and about repenting and about living this out and that we may look back and say this was a transforming time in our lives as individuals and our lives as a church that God will meet us here now we meet Elijah rather abruptly. I mean, if you're reading through the scripture and you get to 1 Kings chapter 17 verse one, that's the first time Elijah's mentioned and we get very little about him at all other than he's from Tishbe and thus is a Tishbite. I suppose there's an ointment for that. But that's all we get of him, you see, I mean, there he is. All of a sudden, he shows up and he, and he confronts the king of Israel. It's not like he confronted a stock boy at the grocery store. He, he confronts the king of Israel with an amazing sentence of death because he says, it's not going to rain. And when he says that, he says, everybody's going to die unless I say it's going to rain. Because you see, in that culture, if there was no rain, there were no crops, if there were no crops, there was a famine, and if there was a famine, there'd be death. He says, everybody's going to die. And you think, where did he get the audacity? And where did that idea to say that to the king pop into his mind? Well, it could be that the Lord spoke to him because the Lord did that a good bit with Elijah if we, when we read through these passages we'll find this phrase, which is in verse 2 of chapter 17, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from this place and go to another place. We don't know. It doesn't say the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and and, and the word said, Elijah, go to Ahab, and tell him that it's not going to rain. He doesn't say that. Perhaps he did. I would suspect there was a little bit of something in there. But the way James puts it, the New Testament, uh, author of what we call the book of James, the letter of James, in the New Testament, in James in chapter 5, we have this about Elijah, verse 17. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. Now you get the sense from that, don't you? That Elijah person of Elijah was deeply involved in this could have been a word from the Lord came to him and he began to pray it could have been he observed what was going on and began to pray and if that were the case why would he begin to pray that why would he begin to pray that it wouldn't rain well Elijah was a prophet and prophets in ancient Israel were a number of things, spokespeople for God, spokesmen for God. They they didn't simply predict the future. We think of that which is prophetic as that which is predicting the future. That wasn't their primary task to predict the future. They did that, but it wasn't just so that they could tell people what was coming up next. They did that because they were pronouncing something that was from God concerning them. There There were... very positive, we might say, predictive prophecies, like the Messiah will come, positive predictive prophecies, like, like you're in exile, but you'll be restored, those kind. But there are also very negative predictive prophecies, like if you keep living like this, then there'll be great trouble in the land. And you see, since Israel and their relationship with God it was not simply a spiritual relationship, but also a, a national relationship, also a relationship that was, that was related to their land, then these blessings and curses came upon the land and not only them as well. Because you see, one of the things that we could say about prophets were, they, were that they were covenant prosecutors. By that I mean this. God established relationships with his people by way of covenant. And a covenant is a promise, an agreement, a contract, really. Deeper than that, but at least that. Where God says, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is how we relate together. And in this covenant, there would be stipulations. You're to to obey me in this particular way. And so we look at the covenant with Moses, for instance, we see this law, these Ten Commandments. And So God begins by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he tells them who, they, who he is. And then he tells them who, you, who they are in the stipulations. And he walks them through it. You shall have no other gods before me. shall not make any graven images. Uh, shall not take my name in vain, use it flippantly. shall honor me. You shall take a day, the Sabbath, and it shall be for you to gaze upon me. Your time is ruled by me. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. Don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, you see. So he walks them through. These are the stipulations. And, and then he gives them the consequences. If you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, oh, there's curse. So notice then as he lays it out, Moses does in Deuteronomy, verse 13 uh, of chapter 11. He says, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your hearts and all your soul. He'll give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, so that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he'll give give grass and your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you'll perish quickly off the good land that the Lord your God is giving you. You see, Elijah would know that and he would say, God, isn't it time? Isn't it time that the curse of the covenants come upon this, this people? Because you see, Ahab was a despicable king. Notice chapter 16 of 1 Kings Verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years, and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him, and trust me, those who had come before him were evil. He was the worst of the worst. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, that was the first king of Israel, really, after Solomon and the nation split. His first king of the split Israel. The sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel. All of a sudden, the hair in the back of her neck begins to raise, right? A young man is dating a woman, and someone comes to him and says, She's a Jezebel. He knows I probably shouldn't date her, right? This wicked, conniving woman. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, who, and, went to serve, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the, in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah, or asherah. that's a, a sort of a totem, if you will, a pole, a, a, an idol, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho, and he laid its foundation at the cost of um, Abraham, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of its youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So everything was going wrong, you see. He married this woman and brought her gods into, into Israel. He, he rebuilt Jericho, which God said, no one should rebuild Jericho. In fact, if you go back to Joshua chapter six, what you'll find there is a word, a curse that says, if anybody rebuilds this wall, then his firstborn will die at its gates and his, um, will, will die at its foundation and its young, his youngest will die at its gates, which is exactly what happened. Because you see, this idolatry, this Baal was the god of fertility and life. So what we'll find as we walk our way through the life of Elijah, we'll find at every turn, he confronts this god Baal by saying, God, God is life, the giver of life. No one else. Trust him. And so you'll see that even though famine comes, God will feed Elijah because God is bigger than that. He's the God of provision. And he's certainly the God who controls the rain, not Baal. He's the God that controls life and gives life because Elijah will go to a place where a woman who feeds him will lose her son. And Elijah will breathe, if you will, God will breathe life back into this son. At every turn, we know, we know the big event, we know the, the great classic Elijah versus Baal kind of thing, we'll come to that. But at every turn, what Elijah will do is confront the sin of the nation and say, God is God. He is king, he is savior, trust him and no one else. Because you see, idolatry was rampant. And we think of idolatry, we think of ascribing to someone something ascribing, imputing to someone, to something, that which belongs only to God. You see, God as creator is the very one then, and I've put it this way for us before, but this is helpful to me. God is the very one, because he's God, who defines who we are, because he's the creator. You see, we should go to God only, to no one else, to nothing else, and say, who am I? Tell me who I am define me and then love that definition and live it out and God says you're created in my image reflect me don't let your work define you don't let your family define you don't let your culture define you right? don't let your passions define you See, that's the sin of our own culture that our passions especially our sexual passions define who we are And so you see, this is my sexual orientation, right? These are my passions, therefore that's who I am. And God said, no, 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 don't allow your passions to define you. I'm the one to define who you are as male and female. I'm the one to define you, not your passions. And Because he's God, he's the one who directs us. We go to him and say, how should we live? We should go to no other to ask that question, how should we live? He said, I'll direct you, follow me. And then you see, we should delight in him. So God defines, God directs, and we delight in how he defines and directs. And so we're to to love him. We're to take great joy in him. I want to say, you're right, I trust you. And this is my heart. To live as you have defined me. To live as you direct me. There's no greater joy. Is the idolatry then is when we ascribe the, the defining and the directing and our delight to another. And so we can do that to our possessions. We say, those define me, my possessions. Those, that says who I am. And they direct me, so I'll, I'll live my life in such a way as to get more of those possessions or those particular possessions. And they're my delight, they're my happiness. Without them, I have no life at all. Prestige could... Be an idol to us. Oh, if I'm thought well of by others, ah, that's who I am, and that will then direct my whole life, and I'll do everything I can so that others look at me with with, with great admiration. And yes, that's it. And that's my life. You see, if I don't have that, then I'm not alive. That's my source. You see, power. Could Be an idol to us if I can control everything, you see. We tease about being control freaks. We know what that means. And we also know it's sin. See, if I'm in control, then that defines me as the one who's in control. That directs me. I'll do everything I can to make sure I'm in control. And that's my delight. When I'm in control, then all is well. When I lose control, I've lost my life. Think of it. Sometimes our work defines us directs us. So, so sometimes it's, it's our children. We find our identity in them and not in God and, and that defines and directs us. All kinds of things. Do you realize that if you live long enough you'll lose most everything? You lose your health. You lose your mind. Probably lose your wealth because it's very expensive in this country to be old. Might lose all your friends, your children, your spouse. Who will you be then? If they are your gods, and you'll have no life. But you see, if God is God to you, he lives. And you'll have him. He'll define you as one still in the midst of those latter years, as Paul said. Is even though I'm outwardly wasting away, inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. He'll direct you, even in those years, you see, and you'll still have life, and if He's your delight, see, so, you see, Elijah comes on the scene with this dramatic, drastic curse. He says, now it's going to be played out because of idolatry and because of sin. How could he do that quickly, this? He begins with his own description. He says, he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, you see, he knew that God was alive. He knew that God lived, and he knew that Baal was nothing, that is no thing. He knew that Baal wasn't anything at all. The prophet Isaiah describes idols, and he says, how silly is it that we construct them now we know that we don't have to construct them physically as to sort of make images of them. We, we construct them in our own minds. John Calvin says our minds are idol factories. We just make them. We find things to delight us and we serve them. And, and, and so you see that was happening there. Ezekiel speaks of these idols. He says they're idols of the heart. They gripped us. We trust them. We rely upon them for life and happiness. But Isaiah said, listen, these are, idols are really silly, aren't they? We, we build them ourselves. They can't hear us. We have to speak for them. In fact, he says, what you have to do is build a little cart with wheels on it and put your idols on it so you can move this, this God with you. How silly is that? He can't even, he can't even, he can't even travel with you. You, know, you. Make a little miniature, put them in your pocket. But still... So Elijah said, no, 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 God lives. Don't you get it, Ahab. He sees what's going on here. How can we live like this in his face? This is my grandsons this last couple of weeks and my little 15-month-old Ezra loves to play a game of peekaboo and what he does is that he finds great joy in covering up his face and then going like this and then he just laughs because he really thinks that when he covers up his face that I can't see him. Now, that's cute in a 15-month-old, but in a 15-year-old, it's not so cute. And a king, it's ugly to think that he can live and God who lives not see. And Elijah says, Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. And then he says, in whom I stand. You get the sense that he would say, thus I can do no other. Here I am. God lives. And how can we not call the curse of God upon us or repent one of the two? How can we not, you see? And he says, here I stand. I'm his. I'm his representative. I'm his. Uh, And I stand before him accountable to him, but I stand under his protection, under his grace, under his word, and I believe his promises. Have you ever thought about that? Next time you find yourself in a sketchy, difficult situation, remind yourself, as the Lord lives, here I stand. As the Lord lives, in whom I stand. Yes, I'm his. Here I am. Now we know. We know that he lives. And we could point to a number of things to say that yes, we know that he lives, but we know that he lives because he came. The word is made flesh and made his dwelling among us. We know he lives. And in making his dwelling among us, he came to confront our sin. Now, you you realize that an aspect, perhaps the aspect, of every sin is idolatry. We're following another. We're ascribing that which belongs only to God to another, to our own passions, to our own wisdom, to the wisdom of others, to to the approval of others, whatever that is, you see. We're saying, you're a God. To me, I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to follow God. And thus, we sin, you see. And so Jesus comes, same way that Elijah came to confront sin. But when he came, you see, he took the curse upon himself. There's a sense in which he said, upon me, it is not going to rain. I'll take it. To me, there'll be no food. To me, I'll die. On the night that he was betrayed he took bread and after giving thanks he broke it he gave it to his disciples and he said this is my body which is for you same way he took the cup and again after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? Well, first this, that he took the curse. He took the famine. He took the lack of rain. He, He took the curse upon himself so that... We might live, he dealt with sin. And then he says to us, "Now repent. Trust me. Don't trust another." And we say, "Well, why, why Jesus?" And he says, "Well, well, look, I've given myself for you. Trust me. Am I not trustworthy? Is my father not trustworthy? For he didn't spare his own son. But he gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's done this. Trust him to define you, to tell you that you are made in his image. Now reflect him. Trust him to direct your ways, to live as he prescribes, and to delight in him, and to say thank you. And to honor him, he says, "No, trust me. Yeah. He lives. We stand in him. We're to trust him. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that even now is all the idols in our lives flashing before us." Conquered by Jesus. Proven false by Jesus. So I pray, God, that you would grant us grace even as we stand in the presence of Jesus, the one who lives. That we would turn away from all that defines and directs us, all that has gripped our heart that isn't of you, so that we would follow after you, that we would trust you. So I pray, even now, God, that you take this bread and this juice and set it apart in a way that enables us to remember in the deepest, richest sense, Jesus, and to know that we stand in him, for he lives and he's here this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all who know themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy, that is, understand that by nature we're idolaters, that we have no hope unless he's merciful to us. And yet we receive and depend upon him as he's offered to us us in the gospel as the savior of sinners, the very giver of life because he took it, death upon himself, our death, our curse. And then all those who desire to live a life honoring him, being defined by him, being directed by him, delighting in him, If that's true for you, I invite you to come. These Two sections, come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and say to yourself, my idols are no thing. God lives. Please come.